Uh, I'm a big Survivor fan. Anybody like the show Survivor? Yeah? Okay. Who didn't know Survivor was still on? It is. This is season 41, no joke, of Survivor. I'm not kidding. There are 41 seasons of the show. It's one of my favorite shows, and it is still on. And last season, it was ranked the number one show in America. So yeah, it's still, per wow, yeah, it's persevering, baby. Uh, Survivor made quarantining cool before it was cool, right? I love Survivor. So we are watching, we are watching Survivor, and uh, we, we'll just rewatch seasons. Uh, and, and right now we're watching one of my favorite seasons, and we've probably seen it two or three times together, but it's, it's kind of fun when you know the winner. And by the way, side note, my ultimate, like one of my life goals is to go on Survivor. So if you want to get me something for my birthday, just go on NBC.com and put in a fake application with my name and get me on Survivor. That would mean the world to me because that, like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to win Survivor and then I'm never going to talk to any of you again. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> But I'll say, you know, those of you that like to watch the same show over and over and again, right, there's something different when you watch it and you know where the story's headed, right? And it's still interesting. Sometimes it's even more interesting because you're picking up on things that you didn't notice the first time. So Survivor, I know the winner of this season, but it's just as fun to watch it because we don't really remember what happens in each episode and who goes home, but we're, we're seeing it kind of through a different perspective because we know the person who's going to persevere to the end. And so when a twist comes, when a blind side comes, we're kind of watching to see how the victor handles it, right? And, and I think the same applies in the way that I view God, that if I really know who God is and know that he is the victor and that he wins in the end, it changes the way I view my life. And it changes the way I view crisis and twists and turns and unexpected circumstances that come. It changes how I view it, I view it from a different perspective because I know that God sees all of it and he walks ahead of me on all of it and none of it catches him by surprise. And that is the heart behind this teaching series. We are in a series right now called The One and Only and we're looking at who God is, the character of God. Who is he? And what we're trying to do in this series is a daunting task because we are trying to explain an unexplainable God. We're trying to explain the one true God who, who is mysterious in nature and, and, quite frankly, is bigger than our minds will ever be able uh, to, like, to wrap the concepts around. We're, we just can't. So we're going to try our best to explain what we can about God, but our goal for the series is this. Our goal is as you learn more about God, you will love more about God because you will know who he is. You'll know what he is trying to do in your life that there is one God who exists in three forms, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the way that each of those forms interacts with us is, is significant. And there's this, this verse that's one of those, those life motto verses for me that I say probably every single day of my life. It's Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I say this to my kids when they're running around too much. I say, be still and know that I'm Father. And they don't know that I'm quoting the Bible when I'm saying that. But be still and know that I am God. And here's what I love about that. When God is describing himself, he's using a Hebrew word, Elohim, which is a plural word. He's saying, be still and know that... If you were reading it and you didn't know what was going on, it would actually say, be still and know that I am God's that I'm divine beings, that I'm divine ones. Now, it's not saying there's multiple gods. It's saying God refers to himself in plural because he's almost calling himself the us God. He knows that he exists in multiple forms. He is in community with himself. And when he's saying, be still and know me, he's saying, know all of me. 
Know me in the different forms. I want you. God is inviting you to know him as, his, as, as your creator, as your father, but also God the Son, Jesus, who we're going to be talking about today, as your model for life. And then next week, as God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is probably the, the most misunderstood portion of who God is. Because we all have different beliefs, and some of us aren't even quite sure what that means. So I am so excited about this as we continue on. Last week, we talked about God the Father. How God the Father, I think the most important thing that we grasp in this, is God the Father is love. He doesn't love. He is love. Like, like he is the verb of love. So he does love because he is love. And he is sovereign, which means he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, like he oversees everything. So if God is, is all-loving, if he truly loves you, and if he's all-powerful, he truly has control over everything, then we should be able to pray bolder prayers, to be riskier in what we ask for from God. Because if he really loves you, and if he really is all-powerful, and whatever you ask for from him, he actually has the ability to change the situation, that should cause us to be more bold than what we ask for from God. But often, as humans, we are so good at worrying and forgetting that the all-powerful, loving God wants to be invited into situations with us. And so this week, we continue on by looking at God, the Son, Jesus. And while while Jesus is the most talked-about form of the Trinity, it's also the most debated, Right? There is great confusion as to who Jesus is and what he actually did. And everything in our faith, this is so important, everything in our faith hinges on truly understanding who Jesus is. Because the three largest world religions all believe in Jesus. But what they believe is what sets us apart from one another. So Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, the three largest religions in the world, all believe that there was one God that created the heavens and the earth, but simply believing in the right God is not enough to be saved. James 2.19 even says this, You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in fear. That's why here at Grace Church, we call ourselves followers of Jesus instead of believers. A lot of people say I'm a believer. Well, the Bible's invitation to us is not just to believe in God, it's to follow him. A lot of people believe in God. I have atheist friends that believe in Jesus, that believe Jesus existed. Believing isn't enough. Following is what Jesus asks us to do. Following Jesus is the distinction, because even Muslims believe in God. But here's what makes us distinct from Judaism, from, from Islam, from other world religions. is we, we believe also there's one true God, but we believe he's the Elohim triune God that exists in three forms. We believe because God's word tells us that God, this is, he's the us God. In Genesis 1.26, he, he, that's how he refers to himself. He said, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So what distinguishes us those who choose to follow Jesus from other world religions is what we believe about Jesus. Now, very quickly, I'll, sh- I'll share with you what other religions believe about Jesus. In Islam, they believe Jesus is God's highest prophet, highest ranked prophet, but not the Messiah. In Baha'i, they believe Jesus is one of the many manifestations of, of God, but not God himself. In Buddhism, Jesus was a wise teacher, but not the Messiah, not God. In, in, even in science, They accept that Jesus was a true historical figure, very influential, a wise teacher, 
but not God. In fact, there's over 15,000 historical references to the validation of Jesus existing. Like, there is no debate in science, in history, and in religion if Jesus, the, the person of uh, Jesus, actually existed. That You can't debate that. If you debate that, you're denying history, you're denying science. That's not what the debate is. So to say, I believe in Jesus, that doesn't mean anything. So do atheists. So do scientists. So do historians. Everybody's in agreement on that. What we have to come to terms with is, do we believe Jesus was who he said he is? Because that's, that's where we separate ourselves. And that's what I want to clear up today. Because the truth is, we can't all be right, right? These differing views of Jesus, they conflict with one another. And here's, here's the verse I want to start with, where Jesus draws a line in the sand. And it's towards the end of his ministry, and it probably created enormous division and confusion and frustration. And from people that up to that point, they might have been kind of tracking with him. But when he says this, they have to make a decision. They can no longer just believe in Jesus. They have to make a decision. Are they going to follow him? And here's what they say. John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Let me explain what he's saying. Now, this, the, the, the New Testament of the Bible was written in Koine Greek, which is not the same Greek that if you went to Greece today that you'd have. This is an ancient Greek that is not spoken anymore, and it was so elaborate that uh, Koine Greek uh, had so many more words in their language than English. And so often what would happen is you'd have this elaborate concept that as we're trying to translate to English, we lose some of the magnitude of that word. And, and these three words all lose magnitude when we just say he's the way. Now, here's what Jesus actually meant. Like the, the direct translation would have said, he's the road. I am the road to God. The truth. I am the, the, the absolute truth. I'm the objective truth. I'm the truth over all circumstances. It's, it's like if you know, in whatever town you live in, you might have specific local laws or we might have certain regional laws or state laws. This is like the federal law that is true for everywhere. It, it like supersedes whatever the local law is. He's saying that this truth is over everything when he says he's the truth. And the life, that means absolute fullness of life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He says, I am. Jesus says, I am the bridge to God. He tells us that we have to either accept all of who he claims to be or we reject him completely. In other words, we can't just say he's a good man. We can't just say he's a wise teacher. We can't just say he's a prophet because that's never what Jesus claims to be. He either is the way, the truth, and the life, or he's not. He's a liar, which means we have a decision to make. There's no middle ground. In fact, C.S. Lewis uh, writes this best in Mere Christianity. And if you want a great book to dive deeper on this, I wouldn't su- this isn't like a casual beach read, okay? Mere Christianity is like we're going to dive deep and it's going to exhaust you with each chapter because it's got such rich theology in it. But Mere Christianity, here's how C.S. Lewis describes this concept. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. See, because Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, he either was 
or he's a crazy man. That's what we need to resolve. We have no ground to say, I believe Jesus was a good model, was a good moral teacher, but not God. We can't, because that's not who Jesus claimed to be about himself. So that's what we're hoping to look at is who was Jesus and what does it have to do with me? So we're going to look at a few different verses throughout God's word, the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that give us glimpses of what it means for Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to start in Genesis. And if you want to keep up with us in your Bibles or on your phone, you can. We're going to have them on the screens too because we're going to be hopping around a little bit. All right, so start at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, so it might be like page 2 or swipe two of, of your Bible app, but so much has happened already. God's created everything. He saw Adam and Eve, and he said, you're my favorites, and you're the ones that I call very good while everybody else is good, and I, and I love you more. That's what he says. So cat lovers, sorry, he loves you more than your cat, all right? God is making that very clear on page two of the Bible, all right? And then he says, I'm going to give you dominion over everything. And then he says, everything is yours except for that one tree over there. I don't want you to go to that tree. And what does Adam and Eve do? What do little kids do when you tell them not to do something? What do they do? They do it, right? And so Adam and Eve disobey God. Sin enters the world. They disobeyed just like we all disobey. And they were, they were lured and tempted by the enemy, the serpent. And so God, God goes to Adam and Eve, and he gives them their punishment, and then he goes to the serpent. That's where we jump in. Genesis 3.14, it says, Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, because you have tempted my beloved creation, Adam and Eve, towards disobedience, you, have, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. Who hates snakes? He said you would, right? You will crawl on your belly, groveling in, the, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility, hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, this, this verse is not saying the curse is snakes, you're going to be hated by mankind, okay? Now, that's probably an offshoot of this. I think a lot of us don't like snakes, and maybe that's right. Maybe you have theological reasons for that. For me, I just don't like the look of them, right? What, what God is actually saying here is so much more symbolic. And what he's saying is you, Satan, you will be the enemy of mankind. You will be, the man, you will be man's ultimate enemy. And, and, and there will be a war. And then he goes on and he speaks a little bit more and he says this, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, at this point, he's not saying he as in mankind. He's talking about a specific person. That's a singular word there. He says he, he's saying there's an actual offspring of Eve. There's an actual person who will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Who's he talking about? Jesus, right? Now, Jesus was already in the story. He's in the very first verse when it says in the beginning, God. Jesus was already there. This is the first time he's directly referenced. God is saying, I'm sending someone and he will fight you on behalf of all mankind. Why? Because Jesus is our way back to God. And when God chooses Abraham, he tells him his offspring will be one of the descendants. And we start to see glimpses throughout, throughout the rest of Genesis and Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament, the Jewish law, that give us glimpses of Jesus in the story, that he's, he's the way back to God, that God's disobedient people, Jesus is the way back. We see that with Abraham. We see that uh, a few years later when, when Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac uh, and, and in the ram, that's a, that's a symbolic picture of, of what Jesus will be for us years later. Jesus is the lamb sacrificed by every Jewish family in the book of Exodus the night before the escape from Egypt. Jesus is physically present in the furnace of Shadrach, 
Meshach and Abednego as he protects them from danger. Who knows Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yeah, okay, there's not a lot of Shadrachs in my generation. So when I hear Shadrach, I know it's talking about the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three young guys who are gung-ho about God. And, and King Nebuchadnezzar said, he creates all these, all these laws that, that he's supposed to be worshiped instead of the one true God. They get thrown into a furnace because they say, we will not turn our back on God. And who rescues them in the furnace? Jesus. He's there with them. He, Daniel refers to him in his book when he says in, in Daniel 7:14 given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. Jesus is the Holy One of Israel that David refers to, that King David talks about, that would not be left to rot in the grave. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that Isaiah wrote about centuries later and centuries before he came to earth. Jesus is the one who John the Baptist, the last of the Jewish prophets, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, God the Son, he's in the whole story, constantly doing what? Connecting people back to God. Jesus is a great teacher, but he's so much more. Jesus was a moral leader and a great leader, but he's so much more. He's the connection to God. So let's read that verse again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He's saying, if you believe anything else about me, you've missed it. That's who Jesus is. And why? Why do we need a way back to God? Because doesn't that assume, doesn't that imply that we've strayed from him, that we aren't already connected with him? Yes. And that's true for all of us. That's true for me. That the same sin that Adam and Eve had in their lives, in their hearts, exists in all of us. Uh, in the book of Romans, it's talked about, the Romans 5.12, it explains what was happening with Adam. How does that apply to me in 2021? Here's what it says. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. That sin is what? It's disobedience to God. It's distance, it, it's distance from God, which does what? It creates separation from God. But, verse 15, but... There is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. You have inherited sin through your bloodline. Don't blame your parents for that. That's Adam and Eve's fault, right? We've all had that. I have Italian blood in me that I inherited through my family line. We have sin in all of our blood that we inherited through Adam and Eve. You are born into disobedience. You don't have to teach someone to be disobedient to God. If you don't believe me, just go over to the nursery for a few minutes. Just watch what happens. No, one, no parent is saying, hey, we want you, you to make my life miserable. I just want you to be disobedient to everything I say. You don't have to say that. That's just in it. Why? Because sin is in our blood. But, verse 15, even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that, Adam's one man's sin. One man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. It led to death, to punishment, to separation, that we need a way back to God. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we're guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, it causes death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace, his gift of righteousness for all who receive it, will triumph, will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. That's why we clap after we baptize, because we now live in triumph. That's why it's so important that you understand who Jesus is and what he did. Because to call him just a wise teacher or a great leader would sell him so short. 
There's a lot of wise teachers and great leaders in my generation that fall so short of Jesus. He's so much more than that. He's our freedom. He's our second chance. He's our bridge back to God. He's our bridge back to our Father. So one of my favorite moments in, in Survivor is towards the end, they, they surprise the castmates that are still on, and they bring their loved ones. They fly them from across the world, and then they're about to go into a challenge, and then Jeff says, okay, guys, just so you know, we've got some surprises for you. And then all of a sudden, like one of the girl's dads runs around the corner and she just starts weeping and crying. And then like somebody's husband comes and then it's like the guy's brother comes and whoever they chose to be their loved one. And they're like reuniting and crying. And even though like the castmates smell horrible and they got no deodorant and they got stuff all in their teeth and like nobody cares because it's this beautiful family reunion. And every, every time when I watch it in that season, I'm tearing up too because it's like you almost step out of the game for a moment. It's no longer about the competition. It's this beautiful moment. Why? Because it's beautiful when families reunite. And that's what Jesus does. It's the beautiful moment of families reuniting, of us reuniting with our spiritual father, where our sin has separated us from him. And we have this beautiful moment that because of Jesus, we can be reunited with him. Because none of us have lived a righteous life, have been perfect. We've all broken commandments. Moses sinned. Muhammad sinned. Your favorite hero, your favorite person in the world that you think can do no wrong, they've sinned. I've sinned. We've all sinned. We've all lived imperfect lives except for Jesus. And because he was righteous and because he was sinless, he died the criminal's death on my behalf, on behalf of you. And then, and then he, he offered the sacrifice for all sinners in our place. So because of that, we can have hope because we have a bridge back to God that imperfect people can look at the perfect sacrifice as their way back to God. That's why Jesus says he's the way. It's so much more than just a word. It's an invitation. What does it mean for Jesus to be the truth? Hebrews 1 explains this. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says, Long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he's spoken to us, through his Son, God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, he created the universe. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, that Jesus is the expression of who God is, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he cleansed us from his sin, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. He, he conquers death, and he goes back up to heaven, and he sits on his throne. What a powerful image there, that Jesus is the true image of God. Like, he's the physical picture of of who this wonderful, mysterious God is. You know how sometimes you can look at a picture and it just like, it's just like a physical display of a concept or an emotion. You look at it and you're like, that just, that's just, that just captures an emotion, right? So when I think of joy, I, look, I think of this picture of my two daughters holding our puppy that we got two weeks ago for the very first time. So my five-year-old and three-year-old have been asking for a dog every hour of every day for the past year. And it took us 10 months because all you people went out and got dogs during quarantine. So it took us 10 months to finally find the dog, uh, and that is little Sadie Sargent. So she is just a pound more than the guinea pig I had as a kid. And our girls are ecstatic. So like when I think of joy, I just think of that picture. Like that picture, doesn't that just capture joy? Two little girls finally getting to hold their puppy, and they wake up. 
and they're excited. And they go to bed, and they're excited. And throughout the day, they're excited. And Sadie's the most patient dog. Actually, Sadie's perfect, too. Sadie didn't have sin in her life, either, because she's just perfect. She just lets, like, Hazel throw her across, and she's just like, this is better than the barn I came from. This is pretty good. So that's joy right there. It brings so much joy to my daughter, Holly, because, like, Holly is ecstatic that this dog accepts her. Like, that's, that's all she's looking for is the acceptance of a dog. She come, she'll pet and she'll go, Daddy, she loves me. She just loves me. So there's just joy. Like, when you see joy, that's what I think of. When I think of, like, cool, of suave, I think of this. I think of this picture of Brandon, our student director. Isn't he just cool? Don't you just want to be like that guy? It's just suave, right? That's in the dictionary right there, right next to cool. It's like, man, that guy. All of our students are like, I want to be like that guy. I'm coming to student ministry because I just want to be around that guy. Certain words, like they're just captured in a picture, right? When I think of beautiful, of like a masterpiece, of just like the, the beauty of life, I think of this. Anybody else? Mike's pastry, right? It's beautiful. People in other parts of the country, they don't get it. They're like, I've had a cannoli. Our grocery store had one. I was like, no, 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 no. Cash only, baby, right? That's beauty right there. Jesus is like that, that physical picture of, of who God is. So like we have pictures that can describe a concept. What about God? Jesus. He's the physical picture. Remember those, those bracelets that everyone used to wear, the what would Jesus do? Like, that's like saying, what would God do? We know. What would God do if he was in my situation? It's in the word. He lived the human life. He was tempted in the same way you were. He didn't have the same scenarios as you. He wasn't tempted the exact same way you were, but he triumphed. And he showed us how. Because he, he, he's that image. He's that picture. So when it says Jesus, when he says, I'm the truth, he's saying so much more. He's saying, I'm the truth in life. I'm the true display of God. Isn't that amazing? That God loves you so much that he gave you a physical picture of who he is. The clear manifestation. And this is incredibly significant to us. Here's why. Because Jesus lived the life he wants us to live. He lived the life wants you to live. And there's this, there's this moment that's so significant at the end of Jesus' ministry before he's arrested where he, he's just washed all of the disciples' feet. You guys know that story? And, and it's, it's kind of this awkward moment. We, the, the scriptures don't really capture how awkward that probably was. Like imagine your rabbi, your teacher, your leader after dinner is like, all right, I'm going to wash your feet now. Now this is first century stuff. They didn't have Air Jordans and socks back then to make your feet nice and comfy. They had leather sandals. And if you've ever worn, like, if your feet have ever been, like, really sweaty with leather sandals in the summer, you know how stinky they get. And that's with herbal essences. And, like, you can walk around with a garden now and cover it up. They didn't have any of that back then. So when Jesus is washing their feet, that's a stinky task right there. And the reason it's so significant is because in that culture, that was what people did when you entered somebody's home is you'd walk and you'd take your, your sandals off and a servant would come and wash your feet before you come in. And there's some symbolic things there, but, but part of it is they just didn't want their house to smell like stinky feet, right? And so that was the servant's job. That was kind of the lowest of the lowest. That was the hired help. And Jesus does that. And he serves them. And then he says this. And I don't even know if they really understand what's going on, right? Here's what, here's what he says. John 13, 15, he says, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are no greater than their master. He's the, only, he's the first person that ever said that. 
Slaves are no greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. That Jesus lived the life he wants us to live. And what he's saying is, the end of his ministry, my life is an example to you. Do the same. As I've lived a life of love and servitude and, and, and humility, you do the same. As I've lived a life where I've always put others instead of myself, you do the same. As I've lived a life of generosity where I'm just generous with what I have and I give it away, you do the same. See, at this point in the conversation, this becomes about you. Because if, if Jesus really is God, if he's the way back to God, if he's the truth of who God is, if he's the physical picture of who God is, and if he is life to the fullest, if he is the life that he wants us to live, we have to respond, right? We can't just hear it and say, okay, good teaching. Like we have to either acknowledge that that's who he is or completely deny it. Do you believe in Jesus or are you going to be a follower of Jesus? There's a difference. Historians that reject all religion believe in Jesus. History proves Jesus. Science proves Jesus. Jewish history proves Jesus. That's not what Jesus' invitation is. His invitation is for you to follow him. And those are two different things. Don't sell yourself short. God has something so much more than for you just to believe in him. That's the line in the sand. That's why when Jesus says this, John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, what does he say? Obey. Obey my commands. If you want to follow Jesus, it starts with loving him. If you want to love Jesus, it starts with obeying him. So your first step, if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never said, I know I'm just like Adam, and just like everybody else in this room, I'm just finally willing to admit it. That I've fallen short, I've been disobedient, I've been selfish. I'm confessing. For some of you, that needs to be your next step. In fact, that needs to be all of our next step, whether you repented when you were 15 years old or you've never done it before. We need to constantly repent because Jesus didn't just save us. He is saving us. That's, called, that's what sanctification is. I'm going to end this the same way that Peter ended his first sermon to the church. He's got thousands of people in front of him. I love what he says here. He says, Peter replied, each of you, this is where it's about you now. You must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about that next week. I can't wait. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. That's why in just a few moments, we're going to celebrate baptism. Because that's exactly what the early church gave us as a model. Following Jesus, what does that mean? Repent and be baptized. And that's not the end. That's the beginning. Repent and be baptized. What is baptism? I want to clear this up. Baptism is a step that you take after you've repented of your sins. Repent and be baptized. It's a symbolic picture of the repentance in your heart. Does baptism save you? No. You are saved once you ask Jesus to forgive you. Jesus takes your place on the cross. He dies a criminal death for you. Baptism is a symbol. It's just like I wear this wedding ring. This isn't what like, legally binds me to my wife, Katie. This isn't like, if I lost this, I'd still be married to my wife. This is just a symbol the vows that we made together. This is, I want to let the world know I'm committed to my marriage with Katie. That's what baptism is. That's why infant baptism, some of us grew up in faiths that taught infant baptism. Infant baptism just biblically does not match the definition of biblical baptism because you're being baptized before you repent, right? So how can it be symbolic of something that hasn't happened? It'd be like me as a baby hand, being handed a wedding ring and saying, well, one day you're going to get married. 
That's not the weight. You're having a symbol for something that hasn't happened. Baptism is a symbol of a decision you have already made. So the people that are about to get dunked are showing, I've made this decision, and I'm letting you know. So it's a symbol. It's a celebration. That's why we're going to clap like crazy, aren't we? And, that's what, and it's a commandment. Repent and be baptized. Let the world know that you're making this decision. Because I'll be honest, if you can't declare this in front of a room in your church family, you're not going to declare it out there. All right. That's why we, we say, if you have not taken this step, if you haven't been baptized underwater since you started following Jesus, today is your day. Don't wait any longer. Now I want to close with this. I'm going to show a one-minute video of one of those video of one of those um, reunion where the military come home and everybody cries in the family. You guys watch these. Some of you get lost on YouTube watching these for hours. I just want to watch one of these. And as we're watching this, I want you to picture that that's what Jesus wants to do in your heart. He wants to reunite with your Father. That you're lost without Him. And he wants to reunite in that beautiful moment. That's what baptism celebrates. It's this beautiful moment that the father is full of joy because he's coming and and the kid is full of joy that they're being reunited. That's what baptism celebrates. Let's watch that, then we'll close. In a nearby classroom, Gunnery Sergeant Donnie Hebert is just home from Afghanistan. He wasn't supposed to return until April, and he's about to see his daughters for the first time in months. Well, let's see, shall we? First, Adrian sees a welcome home banner. Initially, there's confusion, but when she sees her dad for the first time in a long time, it all gives way to this. We have a very, very special guest today. Welcome! Welcome! Emily breaks from the pack first. And then seconds later, the Hebert family is whole again. Muffled sobs into the chest of this Marine say it all. Although after the reunion, the girls gave it their best shot. For mom Jamie, it was a tough secret to keep. But with this kind of reaction, it was all worth it. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we celebrate. A father being reunited with his kids. God's waiting. Don't make him wait any longer. If you came here today and, and you didn't know if, where you were spiritually, it's two steps. It's repent and be baptized. If you didn't expect to be baptized today, and you're like, I kind of like my hair right now. I don't want to get it messed up. Man, don't let anything get in the way from you being obedient to God. We have extra shirts. We got extra shorts. We got extra towels. And in just a moment, we're going to stand up and sing a song. And if you know that's your next step, whether you signed up for it or not, then as we stand and sing this song together, I'm going to ask you to go and find Brandon, our student director, the cool guy, the cool suave guy. <laughs> go and find him, and he is going to get you set up, ready to go. And then in a few minutes, we're going to have a baptism party. How does all that sound? Good? You guys excited? All right, let's stand together. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And then if you know baptism is your next step, you might need a buddy or a family member to come with you. That's okay. Do whatever you got to do. We're going to pray, and then we're going to dunk. All right? Let's pray together. God, I thank you. I thank you for that picture of a father being reunited with their kid, God. That's what you had wanted to do every day of my life. I thank you that the father runs to me with joy, so excited that his kid has finally turned to him. Lord, I pray every single person in this room makes that decision, whether today is the first time they have or today they renew their faith in you and say, God, forgive me. Thank you for being my way. Thank you for being the truth. Thank you for being my path to true eternal life with you, God. And and, and as, as we sing together and as we celebrate baptism together, I pray we remember that each 
person that steps in the tank, God, that's a miracle on display of what you've done. God, we thank you. Thank you, thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.